Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from thousands of successful individuals from around the world. I'm your host, Ashutosh Garg, and today I'm delighted and privileged to welcome a very, very accomplished professional from Chicago, USA, Mr. Dean West. Dean, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Excited yeah. to have our talk. Thank you. Dean is the founder and president of Association Laboratory. He's a globally recognized thought leader and futurist. So Dean, before we start talking about Association Laboratory, sure. tell me a little bit about your own journey. No, happy to. Um, I grew up in a very small village in the middle of the United States, mm -hmm. um, a small farming village where my family owned a small furniture store and a small drugstore. Mm -hmm. And my father was involved in politics. And so when I graduated from university, um, he suggested to me that I become a lobbyist. And so I became a lobbyist for a state medical organization. And that was my first association job. Wow. But I got by cold calling on organizations in the state's capital mm -hmm. until I convinced uh, a gentleman uh, to hire me to be their uh, staff lobbyist and, and uh, political action committee director. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Amazing. So, yeah, it was fun. It was nothing like uh, knocking on some doors when other opportunities don't uh, yeah. um make themselves available to you. And mm -hmm. so uh, that was probably one of my first lessons. Mm -hmm. um, I eventually moved to Chicago where I continued my work as an executive in associations. And uh, then I started Association Laboratory in 1999 mm -hmm. because frankly, I was frustrated um, by the poor decisions being made by associations. Mm -hmm. And today we're a research firm and we help with research and strategy services and we're the leading source of sector research for the association industry. And then we design leadership events, um, CEO summits and things of that nature. So it's been a it's been a long but yeah. fun and productive journey. Absolutely, and you know, as a lobbyist, you were doing a lot of work in with in, in politics. Uh, what made you move from politics to business? From a career standpoint, and I think this applies to everyone. You you at some point reach a a, a fork in the road where you're going to become um, a particular specialist, um, or you're going to be more of a generalist. And I became more interested in the general business management aspects mm -hmm. of associations. And so I became an assistant executive director. Had I stayed in politics, mm -hmm. um, I would have moved to the state level to the federal level in Washington, DC and done very similar jobs mm -hmm. um, simply for larger organizations. The other thing that frustrated me a little bit on working in politics um, professionally it was very enjoyable, particularly um, as a young person, because you met all these different people. You worked on issues that you would read about that next day in the newspaper. But you're also always speaking for someone else. Mm -hmm. um, you were representing a group or representing a candidate. You weren't speaking for yourself. And that became, became both frustrating and boring for me over time. And by moving into uh, more general business management aspects, I suddenly had opportunities to shape my own organizations and, and shape the culture and the people that work for them and things of that nature. And I find that more interesting um, than being a spokesperson for others. Mm. So moving now to Association Laboratory, uh, tell me a little bit about what does the Association Laboratory do and what are some of your missions and uh, with, with so many different associations in America? Um, there are over 50,000 uh, trade and professional associations in the United States. And just like any business organization, they're trying to make better decisions. Correct. And each of those trade associations or professional societies um, or credentialing organizations serve as a particular professional or industry sector. And so 
Association Laboratory helps their senior executive teams and their volunteer leaders on the board of directors make better decisions. And we do that, for example, by researching big strategic questions they might have, um, helping them understand their market, as an example, um, understand their what their future of their profession or their industry might look like. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we are heavily known and regarded for environmental scanning, where we work with leadership teams to come to some agreement mm-hmm. on what the future of their profession or industry looks like mm-hmm. um, so that they can adapt accordingly. And um, it's both interesting and enjoyable uh, work to, to partner with senior executives on what the future of healthcare might look like. And then we share lessons because I, I comically say, you know, we have two clients on one spectrum. We have the American College of Surgeons, one of the leading healthcare organizations in the world. On the other side of that spectrum, we work with a trade association called the Institute for Makers of Explosives, mm-hmm. um, which create commercial explosives for mining and things of that nature. And that gives you a sense of the spectrum of associations in the United States. Mm-hmm. Everybody in every organization at some level is represented. Mm. So, you know, one of the things I was talking to a political leader in India, and they were saying that politicians find it easier to deal with associations rather than individual companies or individuals. Correct. I'd love to get your perspective. Sure. The role that associations play relative to the government, um, particularly in the United States, is to help companies within an industry Mm. um, or professionals within a particular professional um, uh, organization come to agreement on what they want and why Mm. before they approach the government. Right. Um, So there's a self-regulating aspect of that. Much of continuing medical education, for example, in the United States didn't grow out of government regulation. Mm. It grew out of healthcare clinicians um, trying to codify how good healthcare was practiced and ensure that people who could practice it did so competently. So it wasn't initiated by the government and the government has a role that wasn't initiated by it. Mm-hmm. Um, so most trade and um, professional associations and the modern association industry in America was started in Chicago where I live, um, uh, grew out of individuals desires to make their industry safer, for example, or make sure their physicians or nurses were more competent. Mm. And only later did the, did the government have a role in that. So if you're working for the government, if you're a policymaker, representatives of these industries can come to you and say, we've already agreed, this is how we need to operate. How can you help that? Um, there's also a defensive aspect, which is sometimes there are policy debates that harm or hurt a particular industry and help or harm another industry. Mm-hmm. And so it's easier for government policymakers to navigate and help negotiate those disputes among different professions and different industries. Mm-hmm. And uh, given the situation of associations, it's 50,000 of them in, in the U.S., what are some of the current challenges being faced by associations in the years? And how do you see them evolving in the coming years? I think when we look, we've been conducting an environmental scan for over a decade now, we're looking forward. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that has really stood out for me is technological interconnectedness. The fact mm-hmm. that you and I can have this simple interview and conversation in two different countries, two different time zones. You and I don't think a thing about it. And so what we're seeing is because of this technological interconnectedness, the disruption or the disintegration of traditional boundaries between people, between the transfer of money, between the transfer of information. Um, And many associations are formed around geographic boundary. You're a provincial association or a state association or a national association. 
And those boundaries between countries for from information, for money, and for competency via people are effectively no longer in place. And the pandemic, the recent pandemic, has completely demonstrated that yeah. so many organizations worked virtually for two years. Mm-hmm. And so if you are fundamentally organized around a boundary, but the boundary no longer exists, mm-hmm. that means competitors can come in from outside and approach your audience. Mm-hmm. It also means though you have opportunities to go other places where you might not have. And right now, a lot of associations are grappling with the, the concept of being organized around boundaries, but having those boundaries fundamentally eliminated or disrupted via technology. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing that they're struggling with right now is historically, because associations in the United States mm-hmm. were arenas for professionals or companies to come to agreement, they tend to have very deliberative decision-making bodies, okay, that take a long time. Well, the more dynamic the environment changes, uh, dynamically the environment changes, and the more dramatic those changes, the less a deliberative and slower decision-making process help you, Hmm. particularly when you're competing against entities for for profit corporations, for example, that move much faster. Hmm. So I think right now what we'll be seeing over these in the association sector is how do they adapt to a world without boundaries and how do they succeed in a very competitive world when their decision-making has historically been structured to be very slow and very deliberative? Mm -hmm. One of the other things that a lot of associations have done in the past is dissemination of information to members and done it very, very effectively and also kept Mm -hmm. industry members uh, apprised of what's going on. You spoke of technology a few minutes ago. How is the digital world and technology changing this particular aspect of associations? Because every member is now empowered and equally well connected with knowledge. Exactly right. Um, So historically, many people didn't recognize that an important role for associations was to evaluate or vet the quality of information. And so if I was a member of the American College of Surgeons and I would read the journal of um, the college, I could have confidence that the research studies within that journal had been properly vetted. Well, because of technology, there's now not a necessity for me as an author to go through that journal. I can simply, I can publish on LinkedIn. I can I can notify people um, via TikTok, things of that nature. So the traditional role of associations at ensuring professionals um, in particular receive high quality information has been disrupted by that technology. Mm. And for all of us, if we turn on our computer, we see all the different opinions, all right. the different entities you know, telling us about all different things in the world. How do we know that those um, those people and those organizations don't have a particular bias in one way or another? How do we know that the information they give us is accurate? Yeah. Um, because now we can go around those traditional structures. And I think you'll see that particularly with AI, you're seeing the tools allowing um, you or myself to go around these organizations that historically vetted information are gonna allow us to do it even more quickly and more effectively. Mm-hmm. But as consumers of information, we now have to figure out, well, can we trust you and I mm. if, if we disseminate that? And I think that'll be one of the one of the big issues. And I think that's the heart of many of our um, social and policy and cultural kind of arguments in, in the public sphere is everybody can find information that already agrees with them. So why would I seek out information that does not? And historically, associations helped that but they've been less effective at establishing themselves um, as channels for vetted information. 
um, particularly on outside of their distinct scientific or professional discipline. That's it. And that was an essay. That was an essay question. So that's what you get an essay answer. When <laughs> no, no, thank you. That was a great response. Uh, and my next question is about advocating public policy. You sure. know, again, associations do a lot of work in advocacy. Uh, how do associations play a role in public policy that affects their industry or profession? Sure. Um, they do three things. Hmm. One is they educate policymakers about the true workings of an industry or profession. Um, think of any company um, in any industry sector. It's, it's a complicated organizational entity, okay, doing complicated work. Maybe they're shipping things from India to the United States, and so you have the entire logistics supply chain. So mm -hmm. it's complicated. So one role is simply to educate policymakers mm -hmm. um, on how industries and how professions operate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because they can't, they can't be expected to know those details. And that's the big role of a lobbyist in the United States is an educational role. The second thing they do is advocate for policy positions that benefit their members or benefit people their members serve. Mm -hmm. So for example, when the American Academy of Pediatrics, they may um, advocate for policies that help pediatricians, mm -hmm. but they also may advocate for policies on child vaccination, as an example, mm -hmm. um, that are designed to benefit patients and their families. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is they act as a venue to convene companies, to convene professionals, to navigate um, professional or industry disputes, mm -hmm. not in the sense of legal context, but um, best things like best practices, mm -hmm. things of that nature. Um, and they act as a neutral body because the association itself doesn't have a particular agenda. Individual companies may or professionals might have an agenda. So they act as a neutral venue mm -hmm. for people to resolve differences as to what works, what doesn't work, what's mm -hmm. safe, what is not safe, things mm -hmm. of that nature. And then to educate their members on changing policy or changing practices that might be relevant to that. Hmm. And therefore, my logical next question to you, Dean, is that uh, how do associations balance the interests of respective of their members with the broader goals of the industry? Um, it's very diff difficult. Generally speaking, hmm. um, the members are sufficiently representative of the broader industry mm -hmm. that the a member, a company that is not a member or a person that's not a member mm. would not have a divergent view. Mm. The membership decision isn't what is causative. So mm. you and I, for example, as, as people who write, whether or not we're a member of a writing association or not a member doesn't mm. really impact us. We're still both writers. And the fact that we're writers or do podcasts or blogs, et cetera, that's what dictates our needs, mm. not whether we're a member or not. Mm. Where we find non-members are very different than members is because the non-members themselves are different. Mm. And if they're professionals, they have they have different training paths, they're younger. If it's companies, maybe they're larger companies or smaller companies. There's mm. something about a non-member company or non-member as an individual that is substantially different. And it's that difference that dictates their needs, mm. not whether they're a member or not. Mm. And so generally speaking, associations um, have a, a strong sample of the broader professional industry. And as a result, all those different perspectives get represented within the um, conversations within this, in the association. It's still difficult because okay. um, uh, you still have to resolve disagreements, um, resolve differing views of what the world will look like and what has to be accomplished. That's mm -hmm. what strategic planning does. And that's one of the things we do. But um, 
generally speaking, um, all the all the viewpoints necessary to come to conclusions on that are represented within the membership. And if not, there are ways to go outside of your membership to get the views outside the members as well. So you're not you're not limited by who's a member. Well said. The other question that I have, uh, Dean, is that you know there are based on all the work that Association Laboratory is doing. What are some of the trends and innovations that you are seeing uh, emerging in associations? And I'm sure you're at the forefront sure. of leading a lot of these, uh, you know, innovations. Help yeah. me understand some of these. I find that innovations are less programmatic in associations. It's, you know, we've been doing conferences for years. We have lobbyists. We've doing, you know, the, the programmatic solutions. Mm. Um you know, we're not seeing what I would call dramatic disruption or innovation. I think where we're seeing the most innovation is in the cultural mindset of associations. So for example, one healthcare association we have worked with is actually acting as a small um, venture capitalist company mm -hmm. to fund innovations, new products and new techniques um, that target their members' market. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that's a very innovative role. It's not role, it's not a role that's new to society you know, um, providing startup funding for, for firms, but it's a new role for an association. And so for me, what we're starting to see out of leading associations is more of an investment mindset hmm. and less of a programmatic mindset. And I think the best example of that is a programmatic mindset is I have an annual conference once a year yeah. and I spend a year planning it. And then I do it again. I do it again, as opposed to an investment mindset, which is What's the purpose of this conference and what do we want to look like five years from now? And, and so people are starting to look beyond their budget year and behind their program service portfolio to more of an investment mindset that has a longer term horizon um, and takes advantage of not only the, the financial resources, but the community resources of the association, access to leaders, access to subject matter experts, things of that nature. And I think that's going to create a wide variety of innovations programmatically too. But before you get those programmatic innovations, you have to have an investment mindset um, as in what are we gonna look like in five years as opposed to what do we look like within the budget year? And that's what we're starting to see on, among leading associations. Wonderful. I have time for two more questions. Sure. My next question is that, you know, there are some associations which are very, very proactive and which mm -hmm. lead the way, so to speak. There are sure. some which are not so proactive. What lessons can be learned from the experiences of proactive associations, especially when it comes to handling new trends and challenges? Sure. Wherever you go in the world, in whatever language you speak, there is some local saying that basically says, in order to succeed, you simply have to show up. Hmm. Um, and, and I've heard it in various forms throughout my travels. And so regardless of the size of your organization, and it's publicly perceived influence mm -hmm. simply by participating, you increase your power mm -hmm. because you're at the table, whether that's through someone like a lobbyist or a staff person, whether that's one of your volunteer leaders, a member of your board, for example, participating. Um, and I think the lesson for not just associations, but each of us personally, frankly, is simply by showing up and um participating, you are more likely to have influence and in the opportunities that come from that influence than if you do not show up. Mm -hmm. And I am the 10 trillionth person over the last 10,000 years of society to figure that out. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that's a new insight, but I think 
particularly organizations that are smaller. I have a small business. Um, we are not a large, you know, we don't have hundreds of staff and millions of dollars, but we have made a concentrated effort to lead on sector research, mm-hmm. that we will do it. And we will do it in a way that no one else can, because we're a research company. We know how to ask questions. We've got the technological platform. And so my small business is by far the leading source of sector study in the entire sector in the world. Mm-hmm. And in it, I'm almost embarrassed to say that. You think someone larger and richer than us would have figured that out, but, mm-hmm. but nobody wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I met in India. You know, I come from a very small town. I spoke in Dubai um, a year ago, and I remember at the speaker dinner, somebody said, you know, what's your kind of favorite experience? And I, and my response was, you know, I grew up in this little small village and years later I'm speaking in Dubai in the, the Dubai expo. I mean, that's an amazing journey for me personally, but I'm not, I don't come from a rich family. I didn't go to elite academies and private schools. It just kept showing up. Mm-hmm. And so if I had a lesson for people, I, I think don't let your your background doesn't dictate your future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You dictate it, but you can't dictate your future without showing up. And for associations to have influence or small businesses or big companies, you mm. got to show up. Mm. And you have to know why you're sitting at the table, what mm. you want out of it, so you can convene that to other people and, mm. and yourself, frankly. Um, and then participate openly, honestly, and objectively to the best of your ability. Mm. And that builds, going back to a brand called you, that builds personal credibility. Yeah. It builds a personal network. Um, all of those things will present you with opportunities over over the span of your lifetime, personal and professional. Wonderful. And on that note, and, you know, some of your amazing lessons, which are one of the most powerful, but that you have said two or three times in our conversation is keep showing up. I think that is so, so, so powerful because I see a lot of people give up after some time, you know, sometimes we just have to be, if I can use the term pig headed and keep going at it, even yep. though you're not going to, uh, you're not meeting with the kind of success that you want, but it will come. Thank you, exactly right. Dean, for speaking to me about your journey. Thank you for speaking to me about Association Laboratory and all the amazing work that you seem to be doing, uh, supporting so many different associations in the US. Uh, thank you for speaking to me at such length about the different aspects of associations in America. I didn't know there were 50,000 associations, but... Yep country the size of america i would imagine yeah. that big place a lot of people Absolutely. so yeah but thank you yeah. again for speaking to me and good luck my pleasure thank you very much have a great day thank you for listening to the brand called you video cast and podcast a platform that brings you knowledge experience and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for the brand called you.